Hi everyone, welcome to season two, episode 36 of Sisters Coffee and Crime. I'm Sandra. And I'm Christina. Today we're talking about serial killer John Martin Crawford. He was known as the Lady Killer. He killed four women that we know of and assaulted many. He was active between 1981 through 1992. Let's grab some coffee and talk about this crime. John Martin Crawford was born on March 29, 1962, in Manitoba. He was known to troll the streets looking for women, specifically sex workers. He had said that he chose indigenous women over white women because he thought that the chances were that white women were probably like an undercover police officer, while indigenous women were, his words, weak. And I think when he says weak, he means vulnerable. Because he doesn't feel like that community was protected at all. Mm-hmm. At least that's what I think he means. Well, I mean, they weren't, so... They weren't, yeah. If that was his thinking, he was... He was absolutely right. Yeah. So I'm going to talk about the women and murders that led to his arrest. The murders took place in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Now, there is a section in downtown Saskatoon known for drugs and sex trade. Now, there's a lot of bars and arcades as well in this area, so it draws in, like, a younger crowd. And a frequent visitor to one of these places, to mainly the arcade, is 15-year-old Shelly Nepope. Now, Shelly is described as a free spirit. She was adventurous and fearless. And as a teen, she started to run away from home, and she was kind of seeking out that nightlife. Mm-hmm. Now, she's placed in foster care, but hates living with strangers, so she's constantly running away for days and even weeks at a time. She begins to change. She starts to hang out at this arcade with these new friends, and they were like typical street kids. So her life was kind of going downwards. Right. Now, in the summer of 1992, Shelly decides that this life is not for her anymore, and she wants to change. She wants to go back to school. She wants to become a social worker or even a police officer. And it's said that one night she accepts a ride with a man and he was kind of seen around town. So he wasn't completely unknown to her. She gets in his car and uh, right like behind a hotel and he promises that he's going to drop her at her friend's house. Now, Shelly isn't seen for weeks after this. And because she's away from her family, but... She's away from her family. She lives away from them, but she never misses like a special occasion or a birthday, a holiday, nothing like that. So she's in contact with them. She's in contact with them. She always writes them letters. Mm -hmm. So they're always hearing from her. So when she misses a family member's birthday, they know something's wrong. This is out of her normal character. Right. And they notice that like her letters stop right away. So her family's really worried about her. Now, Shelly's parents decide to call police, and they open a file. Okay. And I don't really know what, like, I read a lot that they open a file. Mm-hmm. So I'm guessing that they put her as a missing person, because I don't know what open a file means. Well, I couldn't really... I mean, I'm I guess they have, like, a case number. She has, a case like, a number. case number and right. stuff. Yeah. So, but Shelly's parents decide that they are also going to start looking for her, and they basically just drive around in the area that she was known to be in. Okay. And they're just looking for her every night. Okay. They don't believe... I don't know if they believed that anything bad happened to her. They were really just like, she's out there. We just have to find her. 
Right. And that's why they were kind of just looking searching, searching for, for her. her. Yeah. Now, in August of 1992, 30-year-old Eva Tassip was going out for a night. And Eva's the mother of four, and she had ended her relationship with the father of the kids. So for a little while, she was into the bar scene, and her kids actually went to go live with some of her relatives. But this starts to wear on her, and she decides that this bar scene just isn't for her anymore. And she actually calls up her parents and says that she wants to... You know, same story. She wants to change her life. She wants to get her kids back. And she asks her parents to come pick her up. And her parents say that they're going to be at her house to pick her up in a few days. Because they're living on a reservation and she's not. So Mm -hmm. So it's going to take take a little bit. Yeah, sure. So anyhow, that August in 92, a man, someone she recognizes, approaches her in a bar. And they speak. And people say that it seems very friendly. Mm -hmm. She leaves with this man. Okay. And when her parents come to pick her up three days later... She's not there. Eva's not there. She's nowhere to be seen. Right. They also go and open up a file for Eva with the police. Now, police do say that the women were reported missing before. So, you know, like, mm-hmm. there wasn't any, like, urgency. This is kind of like they're, th- they're always missing. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. Now, the first victim, Shelly, was reported missing 38 times. Wow. So that's a lot. I feel like this was almost an excuse for them to not investigate it properly, like, to not take it seriously. Well, I mean, to be fair, 38 times to Is be... a lot. Is a lot, yes. Right. So I think that they just thought, well, this is just her M.O. Right, but the longer it goes... Right, but I don't know how long were the other 38 times like out of the 38 were like 30 where she went missing for a couple of weeks a, a day a couple of hours like yeah. I don't know what okay. the details are that's true um, I'm not saying that you know all they didn't miss things but I'm just saying that 38 times is a lot of it's a lot times right so in September of 1992 a woman that was familiar with the bar scene her name is Kalinda Waterhand. She's 22 years old. She was pretty close with her father, Steve Morningstar. Now, she would send him cars and letters very often, which is something that I feel like all three of them have very much in common. Yeah. He lived on a reservation. She didn't. Right. But they were still... They weren't close in proximity, but they were still close. Right. Now, one night, Kalinda's waiting for her friends outside of the bar when a car pulls up and she's seen getting into him. It's all willingly, and then she's never seen again, basically. Mm-hmm. Now, in the spring of 1993, Steve gets really worried. He hasn't seen Kalinda or spoken to her in about six months. And she hasn't called. The letters have stopped, which is completely out of the norm. Kalinda also missed two family funerals, and he knows something is definitely wrong. Mm-hmm. So he goes to file a report with the police and the police do find, like, when her health card was last used and where it was last used. But because she's an adult, they can't tell them anything. Right. Okay. Which I feel like then that's useless information. Yeah. You know, like, thanks, but no thanks. Basically, because these women weren't living with their families and they all have sort of this transient lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, because they were indigenous. indigenous. Yeah. A lot of people don't feel like the case was taken seriously. Yeah. 
Now, I did see a few YouTube videos on this case, mostly from police perspective, saying, kind of patting themselves on the back of how well they handled the case. Oh, well, good for you, <laughs> right. I guess. Yeah. But there is a really great book, and it, it was written by Warren Golding, and it's called Just Another Indian, and it points out how basically nobody cared, police, or really citizens didn't care because they were indigenous. Right. It's a really good read if you guys want to read it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to fast forward about a year, and the police get a call from a known criminal. This man is named Bill Corrigan, and he was a petty thief and a con man. He spent 20 years of his life behind bars. Bill tells police that the body of a woman named Angie, that it's located in a wooded area, and he gives police basically directions. Now, police search this area, but they come up empty. They question Bill again, and this time he adds that a man named John Potter told him that he killed Angie there. And he says that he's positive that the body's there. Now, Bill has been somewhat of an informant in the past, and his tips always lead somewhere. So police believe him, and they actually try to find this John Potter. They look at the criminal database and realize that no John Potter exists in criminal terms. Right. He doesn't have a record. Doesn't have a record. Oh. So now it's October 1st, 1994. So this is another year that we're fast forwarding. And a hunter stumble, stumbles upon human remains. This happens to be less than 50 meters from where they had searched where Bill told them to search. Okay. Now, of course, police start to search out this area and they excavate. So besides the body, they don't really find much. And just as they're about to leave the area, an officer actually finds more human remains. And it's just about 40 meters from the first set. Now, the police make sure to set up a perimeter really far away from, like, where anyone could see. So, like, the media is very far back. They cannot see anything here. And keep that in mind because it's going to come up later. Now... As police officers are searching the area, they actually find a third body, and it's wrapped in a blanket and tied with orange electrical wire. Now, the police realize that they have just stumbled upon somewhere where a serial killer was leaving bodies. Yeah. So they find three bodies in two weeks, and it's almost like, what else are they going to find? You know, are they going to stumble upon more bodies? Yeah. And then someone realizes that this is really close to where Bill Corrigan told them to search a year earlier. And police are like, okay, we need to talk to Bill again. And they realize that he's moved to Winnipeg. So an, an officer is tasked with going to find him and interviewing him. Now they take the remains and they get it analyzed to try and identify these three, three people. Bodies, yeah. And it's determined that they're all female and indigenous. And they take the measurements of the skull and they put together sketches of what these three women would look like. Right. And the sketches are immediately made public in hopes that people will be like, oh, this looks like her and she went missing. Yeah. After three months, they get a positive ID on the remains and it turns out that it is Shelina Pope, Kalinda Waterhead, and Eva Tassip. On October 15th, 1994, police end up catching up with Bill, the informant. And they feel that he knows more than what he told them before. And as soon as he sees police, Bill says, quote, you found Shelly. End quote. So 
he knows exactly, he knows what, exactly they're there what they're yeah. there for. Now, he tells police that, okay, there's no John Potter. The guy that didn't exist. Right. He says it's actually John Martin Crawford. He witnessed John murdering a woman. Now, the name John Martin Crawford is not new to police. He spent 10 years in jail for manslaughter. He killed a woman named Mary Jane. She was a young indigenous woman, 19 years old. She was sexually assaulted and attacked. Mary had bite marks on her breast, and that matched his dental impressions. I didn't really look into that case. I don't know why he only got 10 years. Well, I mean, I think we can assume why he got 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. It probably has to do Do with with the the fact fact that that she was indigenous. indigenous. Yeah, for sure. Now, John Martin was a very violent man. He was a bully as a child, and from what I read, just a pretty shitty person. Now, John's serving time in prison, and he meets Bill Corrigan. And the way that, police say the way that Bill spoke about him was like he was impressed with him, and like he looked up to him, which is disgusting. Now, they become friends when they get out of prison, And his motivation, he tells police that he's telling on John because he thought that John might one day turn on him. So here's the story told by Bill. He says that John and him pick up Shelly Napope and drive out to Saskatoon in a remote area. And he says that he witnesses John rape and strangle her. And he sees John Crawford stab her. So he says that he helps John to hide the body. So, John was also charged with the rape of another indigenous woman. Her name was Janet Silvestri, and she was later found dead. Now, he was not convicted of this crime, but he suspected. John was also known in the sex work community. Basically, he was like the violent John. Okay. Now, he's put under surveillance, and police find that he spends pretty much every day inside of his mom's house... And then he leaves at night specifically to go and pick up indigenous sex workers. What's interesting is that this Bill guy Mm -hmm. goes to the police to give them the information, but gives them the wrong information. At first. At first. I think he thought, like, if I lead them in this area, they'll find a body. I don't know. Right, but why not give the name? If you're scared of him. Right. And you think he could turn on you, then why'd you make up a fake name? Hmm. Well, I... I don't know. It's just strange to me. That's it all. is strange. Now, I believe he also would try to pick up indigenous women who weren't sex workers. Like, just... I think he was just after indigenous women. Okay. Now, either he gets them by saying that he's going to get them a ride or by paying for sex. Mm-hmm. And he would try... He's either going to try to have sex with them or he's going to try to rape them. I think... It's more likely that he was going to try to rape them. Yeah, he. I think he looked. Yeah, wants that like, control. Wants that. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, the, but this is basically all he did. Like every day of his life, which it is was disgusting. Like, sit at home. Sit at home and then go out and look and for women for hours. Right. Now all this information is hearsay, and they have to get a confession from John. So they put Bill up in a hotel, wire it for sound, and they get Bill to invite John to hang out for the weekend. Now, they spend some time doing what John always does. They look for women at night, and during the day, they stay in the hotel. Literally, they will go out and look for women for about three hours every night. 
Now, on the third day, without a confession, police realize that Bill isn't going to be any help to them, and they have to intervene. So they go to the media, and they decide to try something to get John to talk to them. They go to a TV station, and they get them to air a story at a specific time, and they tell Bill, you have to make sure that he watches the news at this time. So Bill's instructed what time he's going to watch the news, and a news story about the three women is to run. And of course, John starts to talk and he takes the bait. He says that in one case, he realized that she wasn't, that she was dead. And he says, well, there goes another one. He talks about how he killed them. He says that he dismembered one, but it wasn't for him because he found it, quote, gross. He's disgusting. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's just so gross. And police are like, okay, well, this is okay, but they feel like... They need more. They need more because they feel like, okay, the defense is going to say that he was just, like, bragging, like it wasn't true, which I don't know why you would brag about murder, but that's a different story for a different day. But soon enough, John says something that only the murderer would know. He talks about the blanket and the electrical cord, which nobody knew, because we know that that's holdback info because the media was so far away. There's no way that right. they could have seen it. So now they know for sure that John was the one that not only did these murders, but that they can make an arrest. And he is arrested on January 17th. Now, when he gets arrested, all John says to the police officers are he wonders what they're having for dinner in jail that night. Now, they question John And they get his story. He basically admits to killing all three women. And he tells police that in the case of Shelly Napope, with Bill in the car, that they drive to a secluded area. And he tells Bill, like, go for a walk. He rapes her and he beats her because she didn't want to have sex with him. Now, she manages to get out of the car. He chases her and he attacks her and he begins to stab her. And he asks Bill to help him move the body. Okay, right. which is now it does come into question whether or not Bill knew more or Bill did more. Right. Because saying, yeah. the knife is Bill's knife. Oh, that's interesting. Right. What a twist. So basically the defense was like, we know he did it. Right. But how did that knife get used? Who really used the knife? Yes, he was there, but they wanted Bill to have a bigger part in it. Well, and why was the knife, what? like, in the car in the first place? Right, which I think is weird, yes, but it, I don't think it takes away from the fact that John Martin Crawford did it. Like, he admits to killing her. Right. You know I mean? uh, Even if Bill did do more, and maybe they could have gone after Bill, but I don't think they could have if they were going to use him as a witness the way that they did, but I feel like they got the right person in jail. I don't know. I mean, I think that he definitely deserves to be where he is. John Crawford, yes. Yes, but if you're telling me that Bill, it was Bill's knife, yeah. then was, I don't know. There, was there was more? Was it planned that they were going to go and do this? I don't know. Maybe he always carries a knife. I don't know. I don't. Why would you always carry a knife? People do weird things. But this is like in the 80s and early 90s. Like, 90s, yeah. It's, that's just weird to me that it's his knife and 
It's not like it happened at his house or around his home. Or... Right. So we have to assume that he carries a knife. I think, to me, it's more like... I mean, I'm not going to assume anything. I'm just going to assume that he's a piece of shit, too. <laughs> he's a piece of shit, too. I guess my assumption is that, like, he said, Bill, give me a knife, and Bill did, because how would the knife transfer to him? I think that's my... So maybe I do think he should be in jail. Yes. Okay, I just changed my mind. I, cha- I went around... Yeah, no, I totally think that he deserves to be in jail with him. Absolutely. I think that this was planned, and I think that Bill just got to the cops because he was he was scared like he he was was gonna gonna get told on. Yeah. I mean I am I mean that's a I have no evidence to back myself up, but I'm just saying It seems suspicious. It seems very it's like he idolized this guy and now you're telling me that he just watched and he didn't really From afar. From afar and he really didn't take part in it. I don't think so. Right. All right. Now, the only real explanation to killing the women was because he knew he'd get in trouble for assault. So he killed them to keep them quiet, which makes a lot of sense. I mean, I don't know what people are thinking sometimes. Like, it literally is a head scratcher. You think you're going to get in trouble for assault, so you kill them. Yeah, that's stupidity. And he showed literally no remorse. Mm Mm-hmm. John Martin Crawford's defense was really just to try to point the finger at Bill, like I said. And the prosecution admits, yes, Bill is a criminal and a bad person, but that doesn't take away from the fact that John murdered three women. Now, they say, yes, there is suspicion that Bill played a bigger part, but we can't prove it, is basically what the prosecution says. We can't prove it, so they can't go after I kind of feel like they, they dropped the ball. Like on the whole thing, and then but they're do just you really like, think in the in we know like what we live the world we live in, we know how indigenous women are treated. Do you really think that secondhand person is going to get any time for this? I think from they, the cases that I know, I don't think that they. No, could have I don't him. think so. But there was no effort. Like, like try. why not try and get John to turn on Bill and be like, we know you did it. But and we also know that he had a bigger part in it. Tell us what. Tell what us he what did. it is. You know what I'm saying. I wonder I if mean, they if they cut a deal with him to. They like, probably, probably did. did because let's be honest, this happened in Canada, and yeah. cops have been known to do that kind of garbage. Yes. Um, when this happens to to women and especially indigenous women, so. Now in court, when the tapes are played, he talks about Shelley and says, "Quote." I thought her name was Angie, which goes back to the beginning, right, right? Where he said Angie's body, remember? Yeah. And he goes on to say, I should have kicked her teeth out when I had the chance, end quote. Which is just to sort of reiterate what a piece of trash this man was. He was and just. And he's saying this in court? I'm sorry, did you say he's. The tapes, that? when they played the tapes of the conversation between Bill and. and- and John, and John. Okay, this gotcha. is something that he said to, to him, which is awful to think that her family had to hear that garbage. Yeah. Now, it takes a few hours, but they reach a guilty verdict. Thank God. And he is sentenced to life in prison and could have asked for parole after 25 years. So in all the shit that happened in 2020, John dies in prison December 16th, 2020. Just like the one good thing that I can say about something that happened in 2020. Right, with everything else. With that everything happened. else that yeah, happened. For sure. So that's it. That is the case of John Martin Crawford. 
Uh, remember to follow us on Instagram at sisters.coffee.and.crime. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This is Christina and Sandra. Talk soon.